It's another marked privilege that we've each been given as the shades of evening on this first day of the week gather about us to assemble together in the name of the God of heaven with the express purpose of glorifying His cause and His will. And of course, each of us as a side benefit can be encouraged by these songs, by these prayers, by some consideration of the Word of God this evening. And we always trust and hope that it might be good for us to be able to say it's been good for us to each be here. We do come this evening to the closing lesson in the series involving the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. This particular series began, of course, far back in the first Sunday of the month of June. And as it did so, our purpose then was to assist us as we studied with our Bible Bowl participants as they too gave some consideration to the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. They were tested on the first 24 chapters of that book, but we chose not to leave that series of studies somewhat midstream and so tonight we come to the close of the 31st chapter of that book in the Old Testament. The book of 1 Samuel, as all the 66 books are, was inspired of God and therefore contained in it are rather penetrating and powerful considerations, those which teach us about some of the mistakes of an ancient era, but which in principle also similar mistakes can be made even today. By the same token, we learn some noble works of character and we also should seek to follow and to imitate that same nobility even in our day. A highlight of that very last lesson, the one from last Sunday, would come near the close of some of the comments on that slide. We did see on the very last occasion, verses 27, 28, and 29, that there was a man greatly desperate. His name was Saul. He had arrived at this point in his life in which, although the Philistines were proceeding to assemble and to gather, God had provided him no answer. And so in chapter 28, he sought a witch to assist him to, in fact, bring up Samuel. We notice that the power of God, in fact, was observed visibly on that occasion. Not as if the witch accomplished it, but God did. And in fact, Samuel had a notable lesson and some very thought-provoking comments for, for Saul. You may recall, in effect, he said, Israel is going to lose this battle. In fact, the Philistines shall be marvelously victorious. And not only that, Saul, you and your sons will die. And you'll be where I am, Samuel said, tomorrow. In fact, Saul only had a very short time remaining. And that brings us, in fact, to chapters 30 and 31, the last two chapters in the book. And it is to them that we'll turn our attention tonight. We do see in them, of course, not only the closing chapters, but in effect the end of this first saga in the chapter of the United Kingdom of Israel. Saul first came on the stage in chapter 9. The very next chapter after the people had the nerve to say, Give us a king that we might be like the nations. 1 Samuel 8 verses 5 and 20. God not only heard their petition, He granted the request. But it is amazing that later in the Old Testament, we do read, do we not, in Hosea 13, 11, that he gave them a king in his anger, but he took him away in his wrath. It was never the will of God that the people give their attention in the utmost character of their being to these human leaders who so often led them aside from the power and prestige of God as their leader. It is with that in mind, you notice that we come to a historical consideration like we have in times past, and following that, then we'll give thought to some lessons based on these two chapters. We did notice a moment ago about the saga concerning that witch. 
And we notice about the very stern and hard lesson that, sh that Samuel delivered on that occasion. That does bring us to chapters 30 and 31. One of the things that takes us into those chapters then is this. As the Philistines prepared for battle against Israel, they arrayed themselves, made their preparations, and made all the things necessary. Achish, one of the kings of the Philistines, in fact desired that David would go along with them because recall, David was actually dwelling in Philistine territory, the city of Ziklag. However, there were some of those Philistine lords that were uncomfortable with David going along. They were fearful that perhaps in the heat of battle or in some other way he might in fact switch his allegiance and in fact assist the Israelites in their battle against the, the Philistines. When the news was delivered to David that he would not be permitted to go, he and his men proceeded to go back towards Ziklag, that city in which they dwelt. As chapter number 30 opens, David and his men do in fact arrive back at Ziklag, but much to their distress and much to their surprise upon their arrival, they find that Ziklag had been attacked. In fact, they find that not only had it been attacked, but the possessions that were therein had been taken and stolen, and furthermore, the women as well as the children had been taken captive. Ziklag had been attacked while all the men were away at battle. When you and I ponder the nature of the cowardice and the weakness expressed in this military consideration when women and children are the ones attacked, we can imagine the anger that welled up within David and his men upon returning. And we can also imagine the great deal of wrath that was a part of their constitution. They, of course, were interested in wondering who did this and where are our wives and our children and all the things that were our possessions. We immediately notice as chapter 30 begins then that David petitioned God. He, in fact, approached the God of heaven in prayer asking what was to be done. Should we proceed to find these attackers or should we withhold? God answered, Pursue after them for you shall surely overtake them. In fact, David then proceeded to ask God yet another matter. And yet again, God assisted and asserted in the nature of the promised victory that David and his men would have. And thus they set out in pursuit of these attackers. As chapter 30 unfolds, they in fact did proceed to find them, but they did so with one interesting matter along the way. As they pursued, they came across an Egyptian servant. He had been injured, and in fact his health was not good. He had been left behind because he apparently slowed down the travel of those that were the attackers. When David and his men came upon this gentleman, they inquired as to who he was, and he dutifully gave them the answer. When David learned that he was at least formerly numbered together with those that were the attackers, he first inquired, Do you know where the attackers currently are? He said that he did. And David then asked, Would you lead us to them? He first got the assurance of David and his men that they would not kill him for his part in it, and then he assured them he would lead them to where the attackers were. It's at this point we learn that those attackers were Amalekites. And on that occasion when David and his men came to this location, they in fact enjoyed a marvelous victory over them just as God had promised. In fact, the text is very specific. Everything that the Amalekites had taken, David and his men recovered. Everything. 
including the possessions, including the women and children, all of it. And thus, with that element in victory, David and his men proceed then to make one final excursion. There was a bit of a controversy that arose. This controversy came about because of the character of those men that were the assistants of David in the battle. Recall that David had a total of some 600 men. Four of them proceeded to go along with David back to pursue after these attackers, the Amalekites. Two hundred of them, however, were faint. They were sufficiently weak that they were unable to enter into the nature of the battle and thus David stationed them in a position to wait until victory had been gained and all the others were able to return. It's at this point that the 400 wish not to share their part of the spoils. In essence, they claim we are the ones that faced the difficulty and the threat to our lives and we are the ones that engaged in the battle to in fact win back that which was ours. Why should we share it with these who have only waited? David gave the official order that it was to be shared with everyone. There was not to be a hoarding of it by the 400 only. Finally, as chapter 31 opens, it brings us to the closing chapter in this book. And as you can well imagine, the thoughts of it are exactly the ones that we have been expecting now for quite some time. This battle between the Israelites and the Philistines now takes place. And just as Samuel had foretold in that previous set of chapters, Israel was resoundingly defeated. The Philistines, in fact, were tremendously victorious. Israel was sent in, in a matter of fleeing for their very lives. They retreated. In the course of the battle, an archer shot a bow and it struck Saul the king. He was not killed on that occasion, but he was wounded. He became very fearful that the Philistines would catch up to him. And obviously because he was the king, at least in that ancient day, the enemy took great pleasure in capturing the king because he stood, of course, for the victory over the whole nation. And furthermore, the king's body was often one that was paraded and one that was lifted up to great ridicule and insult and abuse. Saul was very fearful that that's what would happen to him. And thus, he gave orders to his armor bearer, Take my life, kill me, before these Philistines catch up to us. The armor bearer was very fearful. In fact, he apparently had sufficient respect for Saul and the office that he held that he was unwilling to take the life of Saul. And so in verses 4 through 6 of 1 Samuel 31, Saul, it says, fell on his own sword. He took his own life. When the armor-bearer then saw that Saul was dead, then the armor-bearer took his life. And in that set of verses, we also learn the Philistines put to death Saul's three sons. Their names are listed in verses 2 and following. And we notice that what a very sorrowful day in many ways that was. Saul's life had come to an end. We did notice that, of course, the Philistines, as they came back some short time later and began to look through the spoils of victory, they recognized Saul. They recognized the sons of Saul as well, and thus we learn quickly that these Philistines took the bodies and proceeded to parade them around, especially Saul's. Look at the victory that we've enjoyed. Our enemy has been vanquished. And we see so easily in verses 7 and following that as those bodies were mutilated 
and so harshly mistreated. We do appreciate that brings us to the final observations. Saul's head was cut off. His armor was maintained as, in essence, an element of idolatry, as a means of appreciation of the victory they had enjoyed. But one of the cities in Israel, the city of Jabesh-Gilead, they learned about what had happened to Saul's body and what currently was being done to it and what, in fact, was the course that the Philistines were pursuing with regard to it. They, in fact, came into the place and they took back the body and they brought it back, to, of course, to its own place. And you'll notice that they burned it and then buried it. As one final gesture and one final saga of the life of this one named Saul. With that history closing the book of 1 Samuel, what might we say in terms of at least a few lessons, some things that might prompt us to give a final consideration to this book on this occasion? I've chosen a very, very few, but let's look at the first one. Revisiting chapter number 30, our first lesson is this. That age-old principle housed in the language of sowing and reaping. Did you notice the interesting way that chapter 30 began? David and his men came back to Ziklag only to find that it had been attacked and only to find that it, in fact, had been greatly abused by the Amalekites. All of that wells up in our mind to ask, have we not encountered the Amalekites previously? And the answer is yes. We saw them back in chapters 26 and 27. There David made excursions when he was first positioned at Ziklag. He made conspiratorial raids onto the Amalekites. David had formerly attacked them. Now they had attacked Ziklag in return. Isn't it true that one more time we see that what David had sown and the things that he had in fact put in action had now come back to be the very matter that was a curse to him? Among those women that were captured in Ziklag, David's two wives were amongst them. You and I can easily see then in that the following observations. Didn't Hosea say it so well in Hosea 8 verse 7? that those who sow to the wind will weep the whirlwind. Anxious to Israel is perhaps exhibit A in a set of considerations that you will invariably reap what you sow. That was true of Israel. It was true of David. And no one stated it better than the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Amazing, isn't it, the far-reaching nature of that rather simple premise. You, As you and I reflect on it, how often have we seen it in our lives and in the lives of those that we know? One invariably will sow what one has reaped, or rather one will reap what one has sowed. It might be interesting to notice that sometimes we reap a great deal more than we sowed. And sometimes we reap a great deal later than we sowed. But it still is true, isn't it? That just as surely as one doesn't reap watermelon from corn stalks, and one does not reap okra from bean plants, we too will always reap what we sow. No wonder then the questions must be asked just as they surely must have been with David. In terms of the things sowed, have I sowed spiritual matters? Have I sowed those things that are honest and upright and honorable and right? 
or rather have I attempted to deceive myself and maybe others by sowing really what's not so upright but giving the pretense that I did. It is a sobering thought to ask. In the deepest recesses of your mind and mine, are we honest and upright and forthright? Didn't Paul say in Philippians 4, 8, if there's any virtue and if there's any praise, we're to think on some things like this. Things that are true and honest and just and lovely and pure and of good report. Are you and I thinking on that or do we think on that which is trashy and ugly and that which is unwholesome, unsound and impure? And then we come to our services on Wednesday or Sunday and we give the pretense of the utmost in piety and the utmost in spirituality. You and I remember that so often Israel was reprimanded for that same behavior, wasn't it? They would show up for the sacrifices and they would show up on the occasions of the new moon and on the Sabbath. But all the while Isaiah and Isaiah 1 verses 7 through 13 pointed out to them that your life is not in harmony with what you claim to be setting forth on these feasts and festivals. Notice again, there was that lesson of sowing and reaping. As you can see near the bottom of that, that premise perhaps is reiterated when David inquired of God and God then reminded him on that occasion of what the Amalekites had done. They had attacked women and children and for that they needed to be punished. So too, we can appreciate perhaps a second lesson. In addition to that one, we come to that case when the spoils were divided. We highlighted that just a moment ago when David and his men were victorious over the Amalekites. They came back and the 400 did not want to divide the spoils with the remaining 200. After all, they didn't risk their lives in the battle. They didn't in fact take the character of potential injury. But we have. We have been the ones that have borne the burden and heat of the day, if you please. David resoundingly said, however, in words that are so reminiscent of other places in the sacred scriptures, all will participate in dividing the spoils. Ponder with me some applications of that thought under the banner of those notes at the top of that slide. One of the comments that David made reminded them as well as it does us that all of these spoils in the final analysis belong to God anyway. Psalm 24.1 still says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the individuals and they that dwell thereon. This earth and everything in it belongs to our wonderful Heavenly Father. We are simply blessed to walk on His footstool, to appreciate the nature of our existence here. And by it we do lovingly notice the marvelous wonder of His creation. That was one of the ideas that Paul mentioned, what, in Romans 1 verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Wasn't it Paul who in Acts 14 verse 17 still while he preached to those that were idolaters, nonetheless he could say that the God of heaven has given us fruitful seasons and rain from heaven. Oh, how bountiful has been the reception that each of us has received from the wonderful hand of our heavenly Father. David made that observation of them and said that those who merely waited, those who were too faint to come along with us, they too 
will also share in the division of the spoils. That particular premise, it seems to have marvelous application to some of the features and aspects of our life in Christ, doesn't it? Isn't it still true that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive, Acts 20, 35? Amazing, isn't it, that on that occasion Paul remembered that beautiful statement from the lips of our Savior. It is more blessed to give than to receive. How honored you and I can be when we, rather than hoarding things for ourselves, are able to share it with those that we love, with those that are in need. It is that idea that Paul used to encourage in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor with his hands a thing that is good. Why, Paul, that he may have to give to him that needeth. It is an honor when you and I can, as we often do, give to the work of the Lord. To appreciate that stinginess in that regard, in fact, only hurts ourselves. For aren't we reminded that if we are bountiful with Him, He will be bountiful with us? 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8. One other aspect of that takes us to the consideration of that division of the spoils and the principle involved in the importance of the members of the church. Even those that waited were important enough to divide those spoils with them. David understood that and he assisted the others to appreciate that same lesson. In the church, every individual is significant. Every individual is important. Wasn't it Paul as he in fact described this consideration in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? He in fact drove home this particular point in the following way. There were those in Corinth who thought that some of the spiritual gifts were more noteworthy, were more special, were more observant. And therefore, they were the ones after which everyone ought to clamor. Paul had to clearly state to them that all of these spiritual gifts are gifts of the Spirit and all of them are to be used to the glorification of the work of God and all of them are to be properly employed. Speaking in tongues was a gift after which they had much desire. But those other gifts could also serve marvelous and wonderful ends. And so it is today in principle. We understand in the church there's a wealth of talent housed in the character of those individuals that comprise that body. And every one of us have works that we can do in the name of the Master. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Paul said, For as the body is one, though it has many members, it is one body, so too is Christ. And we notice two verses later, Shall the foot say, Since I am not of the eye, I am not of the body? Shall the ear say that because I am not of the hand, I am not of the body? And Paul quickly said, Nay, but rather that body is whole and complete when all of its members work in unison toward the goal that has been vouchsafed and given to that body for accomplishment. And that principle is so very pertinent and powerful to this day. So we see the division of the spoils prompts us to even remark about the nature of God's blessing upon each of us. It is with that in mind we come to the third and final lesson this evening, the one that takes us to the 31st chapter of this book, the death of Saul. The death and the final mention and record of this one. As you can see near the outset, we've highlighted that it did transpire exactly as Samuel said it would. 
the battle with the Philistines did take place. Saul and his sons were slain, and they in fact entered that realm beyond this physical existence. A few comments might then be these. Saul at first, in the interest of perhaps protecting him from coming into the possession of those Philistines prior to his death, he wanted his armor-bearer to take his life. But the armor-bearer did not do so, and Saul took his own life. He committed suicide. When we reflect on this end of his life, isn't it in many ways so terribly tragic? For after all, this one that we first encountered in chapter 9 was handsome. He was one that had the charisma and the capability of leading people because they seemed to naturally follow him. It was he who protected Jabesh Gilead and it was he who charged Israel into battle and in fact led them to victory on those first occasions. It was he who had such potential. It was he that had such possibility. It was he that was blessed with such capability, and yet it ended like this. Between that first occasion in 1 Samuel 9 and this, we have seen a man seemingly ebb slower and slower into the recesses of desperation. He first became presumptuous. He offered sacrifice in chapter 13 when it was not his prerogative to do so. He was not the high priest, and yet he did so anyway exalting himself above the rightful place that he belonged. And then later in chapter 15, he absolutely disobeyed. When God said to destroy the Amalekites, he did not do it. At first, he even was sufficiently naive to deny it. He then did admit, I listened to the voice of the people and hearkened unto what they had to say. However, following that, he became overwhelmed with this evil spirit. And as such, he attempted to take David's life more than once. And as the chapter proceeded by, he wasted so much time chasing all over the countryside for one who was even not his enemy in the first place. A man who had misplaced priorities, difficulties it seems all about him. It all started when he rejected the God who made him. And it all started when he started down this pathway of exalting himself. In fact, Samuel directly had told him back in chapter 13, when you were little in your own sight, God lifted you up. God made you the first king. But when you lifted yourself out of that position, then your troubles began. All those troubles reached a highlight then in chapter 31. He had sought a witch in chapter 28 and now took his own life. Tragic to think about wasted opportunities, isn't it? And yet, aren't there some fantastic lessons in that even for us? Am I wasting the opportunities God has given me? Have I turned my back in rebellion upon God's commandments and am I pursuing what I prefer rather than what God has said? All of us have our opportunities. And so many times the Bible warns us that we will give an accounting for the way that we have responded to those opportunities. In Matthew 25, there was a five, a two, and a one-talent man. We often reflect on the comments that were extended toward the first two. But you'll notice they put into practice and they put into action that which they had been given. The one-talent man was held responsible for what he could have done but did not do. Thou knewest that I was a hard man, reaping where I hadst not sowed, 
And he says, Thou oughtest given that talent unto the exchangers of money that I might have received mine own with usury. Matthew 25, verses 26 through 29. In the final analysis, that one was told, cast him into outer darkness. He is a wicked and slothful servant. That hits you and me hardly, doesn't it? In the sense that we do not want to be in the position of the one-talent man. Aren't we reminded in principle in Luke 12, verse 48, To whom much is given, much shall be required. Have you and I been given much? Have we been given a wealth of opportunities and possibilities? I'm sure many of us could in fact say yes. May we not treat them like Saul did. May we not ignore them, neglect them, use them improperly, and ultimately come to such a sad and bitter end. We shall stand before God in judgment, every one of us. You may notice that one of the things near the bottom of that slide does prompt us to consider this. Saul, as he took his own life, this issue of suicide does point us to the hopelessness that seemed to describe these final hours of his life. We asked the question last week, after Samuel had informed him that he would in fact be with him in the Hadean realm that next day, that he would have roughly some 24 hours. We notice that very little is said ultimately about the way Saul used that 24 hours. It does seem here that we notice his life was ended, of course, when he took his own life. What does that say about the hopelessness that had come to describe his way? You and I as Christians should be buoyed upward by hope. We ought not be in a position of hopelessness, but hopefulness because of the hope found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8.24 still says we are saved by hope. And all of us tonight within the sound of my voice that are faithful Christians, I know, look forward to that sweet day when in the life beyond this one we can appreciate our Maker who died for us, and we can understand the glorious nature of being with Him forevermore in a place that is not encumbered with the curse of this land, in a place that is not bothered by the terrible tragedies that associate with sin, but rather in a place where we can enjoy the garden of God forevermore. Some of those last verses, in fact, state that very thing. Romans 15, 13 still says, May you and I serve the God of hope. He is a God of hope, and may He fill your life and mine as we use His Scriptures to do so with all the hopefulness that this life has to afford. There isn't any of us that know the number of the hours and days that will describe our life here. Maybe it's 96 years, like a funeral that I, we attended this afternoon. That person had been blessed to live here almost a full ten decades. But just like us as well, she came to the end of her life upon this earth. And if the Lord delays His coming, every one of us will do the same. May we be prepared for that eventuality to pass through the transitioning episode that is death into that life beyond and do so with the promise of John 14 upon our lips. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. The sweetness of a passage like that one 
brings us to the close of the lesson tonight as well as the close of this book of 1 Samuel. Perhaps in summary, these thoughts will serve to close our study this evening. We've learned that in this book of 1 Samuel, somewhat over 40 lessons, bit by bit, we've studied. At least three and sometimes four on every one of our Sunday evening studies. And as we have looked at all of these, we've been reminded that the principles found therein have challenged us even today. Although some of the specifics are different then than they are now, the principles seemingly have changed very little. Those principles lead us to see this. We will reap what we sow. If you and I are not sowing righteousness, may we make a change at once. And may we begin to sow the wonderful fruits that God would have us to sow. And not only that, the devising of the spoils reminds us of the importance of the church and all of its members. And finally... May our death not be a disgraceful one like Saul's was, but may it be an occasion in which tears are shed, not tears of sorrow, mind you, but tears of happiness because we've gone to a reward and a place that's sweeter, finer, and better than this one. If your name is not in the Lamb's Book of Life, enrolled in that marvelous and fantastic place, why not tonight make sure it's there? If you've never rendered initial obedience to the invitation of the gospel, why not this very night? Jesus has promised your name can be placed in that location. And how wonderful it will be on the day of judgment when the books are open and your name is read. If we could assist you in your initial obedience, why not tonight? Believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess Jesus' name as the Son of God and be immersed, baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. If we could assist in that way, what a grand day for you it would be. If you have begun that walk with Jesus, you have walked hand in hand with Him for quite some time, but then you began to make mistakes. Maybe not exactly like the one Saul did, but maybe you too became, became presumptuous. Maybe you became too headstrong and you wanted things your way rather than God's way. Make some changes tonight. Come and freely confess that God is the one that's right and you are the one improper. Oh, Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps, Jeremiah 10, 23. And tonight, if we could pray on your behalf for strength and encouragement and for forgiveness, we'd be honored to do that. We would only ask that you would inform us in the way we could help if that's a need in your life, and that you would do so even now at once, while together we stand and while we sing.